Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of the living, help us to rest into your promise your promise that you love and hold fast all of creation. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, this week we are concluding our series, Animating Images. Throughout this series, we have been exploring the Apostles' Creed, this ancient text which expresses Christian trust, predating any of the splits in the church and held in common by all Christian traditions. But we've been sitting with this creed not as dogmas to believe or else, but rather as images that can animate us, that move us, that give us energy by love. We've considered that creeds are like a map. They orient us. They give us an idea of the terrain that lies ahead of us. But a map is not the landscape. We still have to hike the trail ourselves and get its turns and its switchbacks and ascents and views into our own experience to make it truly our own. Similarly, we can hold this creed not as a shortcut to belief, here are the things I'm supposed to believe now that I'm a Christian, but rather as guide points that point us to the kinds of experience, the kinds of ways we'll find ourselves walking in this adventure of life with God. God as divine parent, God as generous creator, Jesus as Lord, crucified, buried, resurrected, exalted, Holy Spirit inspiring, church and community of saints giving us belonging, and forgiveness as the way of this community. These are all invitations to ponder and to imagine a good way. The final two clauses of the creed affirm, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, as we were planning this series out, Mike and I had a chuckle that we're getting to resurrection a week before Easter. Uh, We're kind of jumping the gun and stealing Easter's thunder a bit here. Uh, It's Palm Sunday today, as you know, because you have palm fronds and incomprehensible instructions on how to make a cross. I have never yet succeeded. So if you succeed well, done. And yet, today being Palm Sunday, I think it's well that we spend time thinking about resurrection and everlasting life, because the only way to fully appreciate what's going on with Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter is to see how Jesus and his contemporaries understood resurrection and what it means for us today. Now, that sentence The only way to fully appreciate what's going on with Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter is to see how Jesus and his contemporaries understood resurrection. Okay, I say that sentence 
And I imagine that this might be stirring up in many of our minds a story about Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, one which is very familiar in Western evangelicalism today. And it goes something like this. The big problem, the big problem is that humanity is separated from God by sin, even original sin, capital O, capital S, and being so separated is bound to be eternally separated from God. But God, loving the world, sends Jesus to die and bear the weight of our sin, thus exhausting God's divine wrath. And the resurrection mainly serves to prove to us that the punishment has been fully poured out. It's all done. And then Jesus is off somewhere far away called heaven. And if we accept this, then we also get to go off somewhere far away to that place when we die. Amen. Now, we might picture this story somewhat like this, uh, because the whole point of this story is fundamentally things here are not good, and they're not going to get much better. In fact, they're going to get much worse, and our future is going to get much worse, and what we need from Jesus is a ticket out of here. And so we see the resurrected Jesus here in this icon, bursting with light into somewhere that's clearly somewhere else, and he's surrounded by little chubby baby angels. I don't know why they're chubby little babies, but there we go. This is heaven where we are meant to go. On this story, what resurrection means is A, the payment for individual sin, which brings condemnation, that payment is paid. And B, when you die, you also can expect to have life after death in heaven, a different place entirely that is not subject to the sin and death and decay of this place. Now, there's a few problems with this story. Uh, one, we could trace the ways that this story has made Western Christendom careless about the earth, heedless of our impact on the environment. Or we could trace the ways that this story has made Christianity disengaged from social justice. Uh, at a previous church I worked at, the attitude of the senior pastor was, okay, yeah, social justice, that's nice, but what really matters is getting people into heaven. And then if you have time around, get to social justice. Which, what that really amounted, was, amounted to was, don't worry too much about injustice. This is all going to burn anyway. But there is another, and I think a bigger problem with this story, and th that is, this story would not have made sense to or resonated with Jesus and his contemporaries. The Jewish people in the first century did not think that the big problem was how to avoid going to everlasting punishment when you die. That wasn't the big concern on everyone's mind. And they didn't have a coherent picture of going to heaven as a place where you go when you die or trying to get in there. So what did they and the earliest Christians understand by resurrection and life everlasting? First, we should note, and this is interesting, that there is no clear or coherent teaching of an afterlife in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, in some places, we get hints of annihilation, this idea that when we die, we simply go back to dust, and that's that. There's other places where we hear about Sheol, which is this gloomy, dark underworld where the dead spirits go, and it's very boring and not a place you want to be, but that's what happens when you die. You just go to this half-life. For all our modern interest in what happens when we die, there is exceptionally little discussion of this in the Hebrew Bible. 
when the idea of resurrection does first show up, it's used as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the restoration of Israel out of exile in Babylon. In our first reading today, we heard Ezekiel 37, which uses the metaphor of resurrection this way. And that passage goes on to say, Thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. So the reader at that time would not have thought that Ezekiel was talking about a literal resurrection from the dead. They would have understood this metaphor was promising that Israel would be back on their own soil and that it was the nation that was going to be brought back to life. Over time, however, with reflection on this passage and and what happened in the centuries following, this image developed from a metaphor into the idea of an actual resurrection that vindicates God's suffering people. Uh, we see this in Daniel chapter 12, but more developed in the books that were written in the period in between the close of what we know as the Hebrew Bible and the opening of what we know as the New Testament, this intertestamental period. There's all these Jewish writings in this period, and, and they really do start developing this idea of resurrection. Uh, for example, the book of Second Maccabees recounts the resistance of the Jews against the tyranny of the Greek Empire. In one portion, uh, it's pretty grim. I don't, it's not bedtime reading. There's seven brothers who refuse to renounce Judaism and they're being tortured and killed while their mother is made to watch. But one by one, they assert that their faithfulness to God will be vindicated in resurrection. So the second brother says to one of the guards, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. Even the mother encourages the sons to remain faithful to death, saying the creator of the world who shared the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. Okay, so this is what would have been present to the imagination of a first century Jew resurrection is political. It is primarily about the vindication of people who are suffering injustice being returned to their land. This means that resurrection is first and foremost about the overturning of an unjust social order. So for the earliest Christians to, compl- to claim that Jesus is resurrected from the dead is first a proclamation that the overturning of injustice has already started. The resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of the end of empire, where death, exile, empire are defeated. So in place of the resurrection icon we looked at earlier, we might instead consider this one. This is a well-known icon in the Orthodox Church. Sometimes it's called the harrowing of hell. Uh, Jesus, standing over the abyss of death on the planks of the cross, is pulling the dead back into life. The point of this icon is not the need to get out of here, but rather the breaking of injustice and tyranny that is most acutely seen in death. This icon is about the restoration of the community here. Like Israel hearing of the dry bones being given flesh and breath and standing, imagine, imagining return from exile to their land, 
the early church heard the resurrection of Jesus as the intimation that God intended to overturn tyranny and empire. Now, to say that resurrection was a political metaphor, which it surely was, is by no means to deny that the early Christians and Jesus himself thought of resurrection as a literal, actual return of the embodied person to life. This was the belief. And it points us to a very different conception of the body and this world than we typically hear from Christianity today. The resurrection taught by early Christianity was scandalous to Greek and Roman ears because it ran counter to the prevailing culture. The body was not something that Greeks and Romans thought you wanted to live in forever. Uh, Most of the Greek and Roman culture followed Socrates and Plato and other philosophers who taught that the body was just a kind of prison for the immortal soul. Uh, The soul by its nature was rational and eternal, and the body was fleshy and irrational and awful, and the whole point of life was to get ready to get your soul out of the body, back to where it would really be free again. So why would you want resurrection of the body? Why return to this flesh, which is such a prison? Now, what's interesting in the history of the church is this Platonic teaching in various forms keeps bumping up against Christianity. Uh, It comes up with the Gnostics. It comes up with various other things. It comes up with Neoplatonism. It just keeps bumping up against the Christian teaching that the body is sacred and good. The various Gnostics claimed that the aim of Jesus was to liberate our souls from the physical realm so that we could go off to a non-physical heaven. Sound familiar? The church tried to rebuff this for a long time, but eventually, to a really great extent, Platonism won out. Christianity absorbed the idea that the body was stained by sin. It's something we'd be better off without. And the goal of Christian hopes shifted from resurrection of the body to the release of our immortal souls into heaven. Much of contemporary Christianity is in this respect closer to Gnostic and Platonic teaching than to early Christianity. I think this is worth thinking about because it has a lot to say about how we think about the body. Uh, The early Jewish and Christian view was a deep affirmation of the goodness of the physical body and the goodness of physical creation because the ultimate goal of God was for us to live in this world forever. In our second reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes extensively about resurrection. He goes on to say something that I I think, well, it has been deeply misleading because of the way it's translated. He has a sentence. If there's a physical body, then there's a spiritual body. And you're talking about resurrection, going from a physical body to a spiritual body. And so we hear, okay, so physical bad, spiritual good. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. It's actually a poor translation. The, the Greek here isn't talking about the difference between the kind of bodies, physical or spiritual, but what animates those bodies. So in current life, we are what he calls somatikos, which means the soul-animated body. But what we're going to be, he says, is pneumatikos, which is the spirit-animated body. So the contrast here is between the human body essentially running off of its own battery, right? You're just running off your own soul, and that's not really enough to power the body, and slowly we break down. But what happens is the pneumaticos is we are running off of deep union with God, the very life of God in our physical bodies, sustaining and making us live. What we should hear from that is what resurrection amounts to is 
that the human body, sustained and filled with life by its continual uninterrupted connection with the life of God, your body is a wonderful and perfectly suited place for God to dwell in. Your body is a wonderful and beautifully suited place for God to dwell in. Resurrection means that God loves your body so much that he intends to restore it and sustain it forever. You see, resurrection at its core is pointing us to see that God is so deeply pleased with the physical world and so truly delighted in our human embodiment that God's intention is to sustain us forever, to restore us to life and keep us forever and ever. So there's one story in the Gospels where Jesus is cornered by the Sadducees, and they, the Sadducees don't like the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were in power, and if you remember, since resurrection is about overturn of power, they weren't very keen on this resurrection thing coming about. Uh, Jesus commented to them, though, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Jesus' point here is simple, but it's profound. When God says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the divine is claiming friendship and intimacy with these, these patriarchs. And if God is friends with them, wouldn't God deeply value those friends, want to sustain those friends? Would God be satisfied for those friends to simply cease being? No. In the same vein, just before being arrested and crucified, Jesus says to his disciples, I have called you friends. And if friends, then they are valued enough to be sustained, to be kept and never lost. For Jesus, the resurrection pulls together these two vital threads of God's history with Israel. One, resurrection is the signpost of the overturning of injustice and tyranny. If there's a resurrection of the dead, it means that God is already decisively acting to vindicate those who have suffered. And two, resurrection is a demonstration of God's deep delight in and friendship with enfleshed humanity. Resurrection is not God getting us out of this terrible, sinful world and flesh, but rather the outcome of God's friendship with and love for us particular human beings in this particular earthy world. And so too for us, to say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, is to say, I believe that injustice and tyranny and oppression are going to be overturned. Every tyranny and oppression from violence to racism to homophobia to political cruelty, right down to the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death. And I believe that being embodied is good. This earth is good. My own body is such a delight to God that God intends to keep me around on and on, planting me firmly two feet on the soil of this restored good earth. One last icon. I love this one. This is by one of my favorite modern icon painters, Kelly Lattimore. This icon of Christ in the wilderness captures for me the heart of resurrection. Because what I see when I look at this is Jesus in the wilderness, not lonely, but captivated. Captivated by the beauty of this good world. 
Sitting by the crackle of the fire and warmed by its flames, the sweeping expanse of the Milky Way, and the wonder of a body which is here now to experience it all. Here we see a God who is so pleased with creation as to enter it and to experience it as one of us. This icon helps me think about why God would be interested in resurrection and why it's such a revolutionary idea. Human life, every life, in all of the many ways we go about life is a wonder and a delight to God, which means that all the many ways that life is broken and violated and oppressed and crushed and cut short, God God intends to overturn them all in resurrection. And all the many ways that life is minimized and diminished and marginalized and abandoned, God intends to befriend us and sustain us in resurrection. This finally is what Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter are all about. Jesus intends no less than the resurrection of his community. But that overthrow that overturning of violence isn't going to happen through, through violence or power or control. Rather, by refusing violence, by accepting the cross, through death itself, Jesus finally enacts resurrection, the sign that God is truly with humanity forever and ever. Will you pray with me? God of the living, help us to rest into your promise your promise that you love this world and will sustain it. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.